Hello, ladies. My name is Shelley Hurley, and I am so excited to begin this new year by studying the book of Genesis. Today's study finds us in Genesis 2 and 3, and I've titled this message, Eve's Plight in the Garden of Delight. Today's passage in Genesis 2 and 3 takes us to the most amazing place on earth, the paradise of the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight. I have a question for you. If you were in Eve's place in the Garden of Eden, what would you have done differently? Do you think you would have been able to resist the pull of temptation from the enemy? Hmm, maybe you would have for a bit, but for how long? Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything but temptation. Today, we're going to look at our Genesis account through Eve, one woman who changed the course of the entire world. After all, her name does mean the mother of all living, and hopefully glean from her example all that we need to be a woman who can make a positive influence instead of a negative one. We have four main points today. Number one is Eve's splendor. Number two is Eve's seduction and sin. Number three is Eve's sorrow. And number four is Eve's salvation. Let's look at Eve's splendor. As God was creating the heavens and the earth, he continually said, It is good. But after he created man, he said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So he created woman. Woman was the final touch and crowning act of God's perfect creation. God had been busy for six days setting the stage for Eve's grand entrance. Can you even imagine how beautiful Eve must have been? She was perfectly and personally fashioned by the Creator. She was taken from Adam's rib by the master surgeon, and the Lord was so pleased that he presented her to Adam himself. She was Adam's crown and glory. Genesis 3, 23-25, we see Adam's reaction. He says, At last, he was wowed by her. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife are both naked, but they felt no shame. In the Garden of Delight, we see the beginning of marriage, a marriage made in paradise, the perfect marriage without sin and rivalry, perfectly united and full of joy and in communion with their Maker. They were both naked and unashamed in His presence. God made Eve to be the perfect complement to Adam. Matthew Henry said, She was not made out of His head to rule over Him, nor out of His feet to be trampled upon by Him, but out of His side to be equal with Him, under His arm to be protected, and near His heart to be beloved. She was his helper. How can I best come alongside my husband to help? My role might look different than yours. Each person has different strengths and weaknesses. I like how her lesson puts it that as my husband's helper, it does not in any way imply inferiority, for that word is also used to describe God as the helper of his people, or the Holy Spirit, who is one called alongside to help. But we are to complement each other, like puzzle pieces that fit together providing what the other lacks and vice versa. I am to be his friend and companion, to have that Philippians 2 mindset, to minister to him, to esteem his needs above my own. Ephesians 5:31 through 32 tells us that our marriages are to be an example of the relationship of Christ and his church. 
Marriage is a binding contract, a covenant. Being joined to means cemented to. Sticking together, even in the hard times. Weathering the seasons together and coming out stronger as a result. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. Eve dwelt in God's presence in perfect splendor. She lived in the most beautiful place on earth, flowing rivers and streams, gold and jewels, a lush and flourishing garden planted by God, unspoiled and pristine. She and her husband Adam had everything they could possibly need or desire in abundance. They had only one rule— not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day they should eat of it, they would surely die. God was not trying to withhold anything good from them. God's boundaries for us are set by His love for us. By eating of this tree, they would be deciding to independently choose for themselves what is good or evil, apart from depending on God and His wisdom and counsel. When God tells us to stay away from something because it will harm us or kill us, He's looking out for our good because He loves us and knows what is best for us, not that He wants to keep us from fun and pleasure. God wants our wisdom and our knowledge to come from Him. Like Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, I like this. It says, Now God has given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree. God told them, because if you do, you'll think you'll know everything. You'll stop trusting me, and then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him, and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be life at all. Eve had everything one could wish for—the perfect home— the perfect husband, sweet fellowship with the Lord, perfect body, and yet she let Satan whisper in her ear and convince her that something was missing. Our point number two is Eve's seduction and sin from Genesis 3, 1-7. I know someone who went to her OB appointment at nine and a half months pregnant and said, Doctor, when are you going to seduce me? Obviously, she meant induce. Eve did not come up to the serpent and ask, When are you going to seduce me? Satan is subtle and wants to catch us off guard. He begins by speaking half-truths and casting doubt upon God and His Word. He says to her in Genesis 3.1, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Then Satan contradicts God in the next verse and says, You shall not surely die. Eve had a decision to make as to who she would believe and obey, God or Satan. She unwisely chose the latter. She was seduced by his tactics. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that we read about in 1 John 2.16. Let's look at the beginning of verse 6. We see that the woman, she, saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes the lust of the eyes. She saw that it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Satan still uses those same tactics today. It's like so many movies, the same story, just different settings. These are the same lines he used on Jesus in Luke chapter 4, the lust of the flesh. Command these stones to become bread, the lust of the eyes. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the pride of life, if you bow down and worship me, all this will be yours. Is temptation a sin? 
No, but yielding to it is. One person said, temptation is not a sin, it's a call to battle. Another said, temptations are sure to ring your doorbell, but it's your own fault if you invite them in for dinner. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. How can we learn from Eve's example? How can we resist temptation? Although Eve had everything she could possibly want or need, all she could think about now was the one thing she couldn't have. Things forbidden have a secret charm. Why is it that all people on diets want to talk about is food? Instead of filling my mind up with the temptation, I need to fill my mind with the Lord and His Word. I need to know the truth. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. As we hide God's word in our hearts, we're prepared when temptation comes knocking at the door. I recently saw an Instagram reel with a little boy who said, The devil is a liar and God is a truther. The enemy would love for us to think that God doesn't see us or is far off, but our God is near to us. And when we are tempted or lied to, we simply need to call on the Lord, seek His face, run to His word. What if Eve had simply turned to the Lord who was with her in the garden and said, Hey, Lord God, what do you think about what the serpent is saying to me right now? When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, with every temptation, Jesus resisted the devil's lies and responded with, It is written. The serpent of old is still trying to cast doubt on God and the authority and relevancy of his word. He attempts to twist God's word, to confuse God's word, misquoting it or adding to it or taking away from it. Eh, your situation is different. That's an archaic principle for another time. Well, that surely doesn't apply to you. It's just a little white lie. Or no one will ever find out. Nancy Lee DeMoss wrote a book, Lies Women Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. She wrote on the progression of a lie, from deception to bondage. First, you listen to a lie. Then you dwell on the lie. Then you believe the lie. And then you act on the lie. What are some of the lies that we as women believe about God and sin and the truth that can set you free? Here are a few examples. Eh, God is not really good. If he were, well, Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. God doesn't really love me. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And we know John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave. John, or excuse me, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that absolutely nothing can separate us from that love. Another lie is, God is not really enough. Psalm 23, 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Another lie is, I know better than God what's good for me, what will make me happy. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death.
God promises abundant life for us. In John 10.10 and in Psalm 37.4, he says, Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Another lie is I shouldn't have to live with unfulfilled longings. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we read about that we are supposed to seek those things that are above, to set our mind in those things that are above and not on those things of the earth. Philippians 4, 11 says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Another lie is about sin. I can sin and get away with it. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Or another one, my sin isn't really that bad. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. I'm not fully responsible for what I've done. Look up Ezekiel 18.20 if you want to know the answer to that. Or 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Another like, God can't forgive what I've done. I've gone too far this time. Isaiah 118 says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Another lie is I cannot walk in consistent victory over sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says God will make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. And Romans 8.35 says we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We need to know the word of God and apply it. This book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. We often forget that and think we need to muster up the strength ourselves. But like all the other fruits, it comes as we abide in the vine. The more that we're hanging out with Jesus, the less we'll be hanging out by the forbidden tree. To master temptation, we need to let Christ master us. James 4, 7, and 8 says, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We don't fight this battle in our own strength. It's a spiritual battle, and we need to fight with spiritual weapons. We need to put on that Ephesians 6 armor of God. We fight with the Word of God, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. As we draw near to God through His Word and prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He will give us power to discern lies from truth and the strength to resist. I read a magazine article on dieting, and one suggestion was to substitute healthy behaviors instead of destructive ones. This actually goes along with Galatians 5.16, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Unless there is within us that which is above us, we shall soon yield to that which is about us. The best way to escape evil is to pursue good. If we want to reduce temptation, don't bring the sweets home from the grocery store. If you have a problem with alcohol, you don't go witnessing in a bar. If you're single and dating, don't hang out alone in dark places. Do we have friends that are pulling us down? Seek out godly ones. Eve couldn't remove the tree from the garden, but she didn't have to hang around it and stare at its fruit. What was Eve doing hanging around the tree anyways? If you don't want to eat the cookies, stay out of the kitchen. You know what? I can relate to this because 
I recently faced this in my own kitchen when I had chocolates sitting on the counter and I had to take them and pour them in the outside trash because if I put them in the inside trash, I might even be tempted to pull them out. That's terrible, isn't it? Romans 13, 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The longer you look at temptation, the more likely you will be to fall for it. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Flee like Joseph did when he left his garment in the seductress's hands. Flee temptation and don't leave affording address. In Genesis 3.6, it says, at the latter part of the verse, She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Seduction gave birth to sin. Eve believed the lie, and in her deception she caused her husband to sin. With this sin came separation from God. With the sin came shame. By yielding to temptation, one may lose in a moment what it took a lifetime to gain. We need to consider the consequences of our sin. As they took and ate, their eyes were opened, and they were aware of their sin, and they were aware that they were naked, and they covered themselves with scratchy fig leaves. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called out to Adam, Where are you? Don't you imagine up to this point they would have been excited when they heard God's footsteps and couldn't wait to speak with him? And now, because sin entered in, they were left naked and ashamed, hiding from God, as if they could, terrified. They tried to hide their sin from God, who says, Who told you that you were naked? Then the blame game begins. The fingers start pointing. Adam blames the woman and God himself. The woman whom you gave me gave it to me. And the woman said, The devil made me do it. He tricked me. Do I do this? Yep. Our lesson talks about how we too tend to minimize our sins. We point fingers at others or our circumstances. We fail to take responsibility for our sin. Where are you? Are you hiding from God? Trying to isolate from God and others in the body of Christ because you are ashamed and don't want your sin exposed? Do we forget how much God loves us and that he doesn't abandon us in our sin, but he seeks us out, as he did Adam and Eve, not to point a judgmental finger at us, but so that we might come to confess our sin and find his abundant grace that will cover all our sin through Jesus Christ. God wants that fellowship restored to him. He wants to walk and talk with us in the cool of the day and in the heat of the day. He doesn't want us running and hiding from him. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We can't do away with our sin by our own fleshly efforts. Fig leaves won't cut it. God made skins of animals for their covering which pointed to the day when Christ would shed his very own blood for all our sins and clothe us in his righteousness. Hebrews 9.22 says, For without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Are you hiding from God or walking in his abundant grace and restored fellowship? Not hiding unconfessed sin, but keeping short accounts with God. Confess quickly so that you are thrilled to be in his presence. Let him clothe you in the garments of salvation. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Ah, isn't that much better? Our third point is Eve's sorrow. This is as a result of the consequences of her sin. Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In pain we're going to bear children. That is extended, obviously, to all of womankind. And in 1 Timothy 2.14, we read that because Adam was not deceived but Eve, she would be made subject to her husband. You can read more of God's loving design for marriage for a man and a woman in Ephesians 5 if you want to see more about her role of submission, but we have no time to talk about that now. In Genesis 3, 17 to 18, to Adam, he then says, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Because of the curse, sorrow and sin and suffering and death entered the world. But Jesus broke the curse of sin and death by taking the curse upon himself as he wore the thorns upon his brow. Nancy Guthrie said that the curse became his crown. And what a sorrow it would have been to be banished from paradise, from his wondrous presence. Yet even in the banishment we see the blessing. For if they had eaten of the tree in their fallen state, they would have lived forever in a spiritually dead condition. So even in this, we see how God had a plan in motion to bring his people back to the garden one day. Our fourth point is Eve's salvation. Even in the curse to the serpent, we see hope for Eve's salvation and Adam and all their offspring, us, all those who have inherited their sin nature, in fact, all of humankind. Genesis 3.15 God cursed the serpent and said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In this curse of the serpent, we see that war is declared, and the victor pronounced, and the victory is secured. The war is not between God and man, but against the devil and his forces. We also see that through the influence of this first woman, Eve, we see the destructive power of sin upon the universe, and we see the prophecy of yet another woman, the Virgin Mary. And through the seed of this woman, the Virgin Mary, who gave birth to the Christ, born without the seed of man, born without the sin nature, who came to set us free from the curse. This is the first gospel prophecy declared in the Bible, the good news that the woman's seed, Christ, would ultimately defeat Satan and his seed. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, we read that he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. On the cross, Jesus delivered the decisive, crushing blow against Satan and his minions. The victory is secured. Romans 16.20 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet shortly. So until that day when the devil and his cronies are thrown into the lake of fire, we still fight the devil, 
But we don't fight for victory. We fight from a place of victory. Jesus already delivering the victory shout on the cross when he cried out, It is finished. Even though Eve's influence over her husband brought about sin and separation from God as they were banished from paradise, changing the course of the world, God is a God of mercy, forgiveness, and compassion. God had a plan from the beginning. Sending his son to redeem us from the curse was not plan B. He knew what Eve would choose, but he still chose her to be the mother of all living. He had a plan and a purpose for Eve's life, and he has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. Maybe you feel like Eve today. (laughs) Maybe you've blown it royally. God is able to redeem your plight if you turn to him. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What can I learn from Eve's example and be a positive example rather than a negative one? We want to live those lives that point others to Jesus. We as women set the tone in our home. Our attitudes in our home influence our husbands, our children. Are we discontent, envious, complaining, bitter, or angry? Confess it to God. I can safeguard from seduction from the enemy by spending more time in God's garden, listening to His voice, delighting myself in Him. In Isaiah 55, we see the Lord extending an invitation to come to Him. He says in verses 2 and 3, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. I can positively affect others as I radiate God's presence to those around me by spending time with Him in prayer and fellowship and His Word. As I do this, the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in my life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, just ripe for the picking. As I meditate on Jesus' words, take and eat, I am reminded of the price that was paid for my forgiveness and to cover the shame of my nakedness. As Jesus atoned for my sins by his shed blood and clothed me in his righteousness, and so instead of offering others forbidden fruit, I am inclined to instead invite others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Revelation 22 tells us that one day we shall be in paradise as Eve. We will see our Jesus and speak freely with him. We shall drink freely from the river of life and eat to our heart's content from the tree of life. We will no longer be banished. We will be in our forever home. Until that day, let's use our influence to change the course of our world and point others to the tree of life. Amen.